0: Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Gary Flake has been involved with search technology ever since he got turned on to this particular field in college. In today's wide ranging discussion, Gary's going to lay out for us basically the entire history of search technology before Google, the impact of Google on search as a discipline, And then, since he lived it, the notion of competing with Google. The reason why Gary can talk so in-depth about this is that he was Yahoo's chief science officer in the early 2000s when Yahoo, via the infamous Project Panama and other initiatives, attempted to keep Google from taking over the entire search market. And because prior to that, Gary was at go-to slash overture. He also gives us basically the entire story of the birth of paid search as an industry. I've mentioned on this show before, and it'll be a major part of the book, but the story of Google is essentially two miracles. The first miracle is, of course, the Google search algorithm that essentially solves search. And the second miracle is paid search, AdWords, AdSense, all of that, which is essentially the greatest advertising machine ever invented. But not a lot of people remember paid search was actually invented not by Google but by GoTo Slash Overture. So, all of this great stuff and more on today's chat with Gary Flake. Gary Flake, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Oh my pleasure. So Gary it it seems like um just based on what I've read about you and and looking at your LinkedIn um when you went to college uh you're you know going for computer science but you sort of uh end up in what's <laughs> what's certainly hot today things like machine learning and um you know all sorts of things in, including search and things like that just give me a brief outline of like what you were into in your in college and in the 90s when you're still sort of in the academic setting.
1: Okay, well that's a that's a wide open uh, question mm, there. Mm-hmm. But let me I'll I'll even go a little bit further back. So sure. Um, in the um, when I was a kid growing up in the 70s and the 80s, you know, we didn't we didn't have computers. And I remember that the very first computer that became available for me to actually teach myself how to program on was a Timex Sinclair. I saw it advertised in a, in Popular Science sometime in the in the 80s. I think I was 13 years old or 12 when I saw it and I worked the summer. I think I was I think I was selling something door to door to save money and you know cuz it cost like about 100 bucks and I bought a Timex Sinclair. And, uh, in short order, you know, I taught myself basic and started coding and then eventually kind of graduated to having an Apple IIe. I didn't know there was such a thing as a, as an assembler. And I taught myself how to code in machine code on a, on a, on an Apple IIe. Um, and I wrote some, and and it's kind of funny because of that, that experience and as a, you know, a 16 year old kid teaching myself how to code in hex on an Apple IIe allowed me to, um, to, uh, to kind of skip over a lot of the curriculum as a, as a computer science major, mm-hmm. uh, an undergrad. But in the late eighties, you know, I, I was working on my, on my, um, on my bachelor's degree in computer science. And, um, and I, I was a sophomore sneaking into a graduate level seminar that was on this thing about neural networks. It was a speaker speaking about hot neural networks. And, um, and I actually kind of understood what was going on because, I had read earlier some, uh, a popular article by John Hopfield, who is the inventor of Hopfield neural networks. So I was really familiar with it. And I kind of raised my hand and I said, so, you know, these are, so it's just like a, an associative memory. Right. And, you know, and, and it was kind of funny. I didn't think that I was showing off or anything like that, but after sneaking into a graduate seminar, the uh, host of that seminar, who was a you know who was a professor at Clemson, walked over his name is Ed Page, and he pretty much just like offered me a job right on the spot oh. so i 'm a sophomore I started doing paid research for a professor as part of his research program working on hot field neural networks, and then that migrated to a whole bunch of other things in, in uh, machine learning. But I, I actually published my first academic article um, that year. I, I was a sophomore, and then that led to me working at Los Alamos National Lab, um, taking off a cus- couple of semesters. And the funny thing that emerged from that is that I worked so closely with so many physicists at Los Alamos that I went on, when I went on to work on, uh, on my PhD at University of Maryland, In computer science i was actually a research assistant in plasma physics and so i had this schizophrenic existence where i was constantly sort of being exposed to ideas in physics and mathematics and computation and i was trying to build a bridge in my own mind in terms of how all these things related and um so yeah i in the early 80 i'm sorry in the late 80s early 90s i was doing I, I, it, in some ways, I almost like I won the contextual lottery because I got exposed to all of these amazing ideas that at the time seemed really avant-garde and out there. You know, like machine learning and things like data science, but we, you know, we didn't use that term back then. And all of, all of this stuff that was happening on the on the on the boundaries between physics and computation. And so I just got exposed to this stuff at such a young age that it was it really shaped the way that I I would think and view the world for for decades to come. Well, and- I would
0: think that that would be such a boon to being a computer scientist because having multiple having your finger in different pies you know understanding how the brain works understanding how physics works on a on a molecular level or whatever you know like that that has to be beneficial in terms of uh, well yeah
1: it it is but it it actually it's it's almost like um two steps forward one step back because you have to kind of learn and unlearn and 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 let me give you a case in point so i i uh, when i was at los alamos i was working uh i didn't have security clearance at the time so i was working at the center for nonlinear studies which was the hot spot of chaos theory at that point in time oh. so some of the biggest and brightest minds in the world were converged on the center for nonlinear studies there um, David Campbell was the the director um Chung Lee uh, was the senior scientist he um would later uh, Chun, everyone called him YC um he he was my PhD advisor at, at University of Maryland um and so I was I I started looking at big ideas related to the uncertainty that is introduced through a number of different directions and you know both in physics and mathematics and and computation there's 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 um in all three of those you know vastly different domains there's there's a, a uncertainty emerges as like this very big concept and what happened was is that i was so used to working uh, on problems related to dynamical systems and chaos theory that my understanding of uncertainty and intractability was very skewed towards a Physicist worldview and so I distinctly remember that when I went to grad school I took a uh, one of the best best classes. I ever took was a uh, it, it was a, a Recursion theory um, taught by Bill Gasarch at University of Maryland Bill is, is 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 probably one of the most gifted Uh, teachers of CS theory that you'll ever find anywhere. And we used to have to do these proofs, um, for, um, proving that something was incomputable. And before I really kind of wrapped my head around the CS theory part of it, I kept trying to construct, um, incomputable, um, um, uh, frameworks or problems, or or, or give instances of incomputable problems in terms of physical uh, dynamical systems, and and of course, uh, you know, Bill, rightfully so, had to you know give me a zero on that attempt. So for a while, so the irony is, is that I it, that that initial under intuition that I had around physics, I had to kind of put it on hold to to really kind of crystallize how all of that worked in computer science. And later on, I wrote a book in the in the, in the 90s um, that attempted to kind of unify these things, these ideas in a little bit. Um, and, and it's somewhat of a handy, hand-wavy way out, Matt. Uh, but yes, it, it once you start seeing the patterns across these different domains, um, it becomes um, – uh, it really just shapes how you think about everything. And of course, all of those things became segues to, to other – Topics that became very important later on, like information retrieval, data mining, search, um, and also some of the subtleties that happen with uh, large scale social systems like social networking and network effects and all that stuff. So, yeah, I was I I, I tell people that I had the good fortune of being born at precisely the right moment um, to be able to experience all these different things at the right time.
0: I believe the the book that you mentioned is um, the the computational beauty of nature, right? Yes, that's we'll, correct. We'll Thank point you. that out in case people want to uh, look that up. Mm-hmm. Um, the so like, like you say, this is sort of um, you're you've got all these different ideas in your head, but um, by the the late '90s, the web is happening. Is that mm-hmm. is that sort of excitement that's happening because um, you know it's involving computer science, especially for you know the web being like this huge database yeah, experiment yeah. And, and, and search being a um, is it starting to to nudge you and, and other people like you towards towards the web at that point?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so here, here was the, sort of the general trend of the '90s. Um, so the, in, in the machine learning community. Um, the typical, there's lots of different, different, um, types of machine learning, but the, the, the version of machine learning that has captured, um, a lot of attention because of the practical application is, is, uh, you know, just basic, uh, you know, um, you you get a target input for something that you're trying to model. You have a target output and you want to learn that input output mapping. And so that's a problem where we we you know you can you can take a lot of different, very practical problems from the real world and map it into that sort of abstract framework. And so in the early nineties, people like myself would write research articles and research papers where we were studying data sets and trying to um, show the, the quality of the models that we can learn from just looking at data and then making, making predictions. The size of the data sets that we were looking at range from, um, in some cases, um, less than 10 data points. Um, but if we got up to the big side of things, it might be a couple of thousand data points because we are looking at, say, a time series from a chaotic dynamical system or or in some cases, maybe you got up to 10,000 data points because you're working on a control problem or but in other words, what I'm, what I'm trying to call it is that the 90s. We, the scale that we used to – of the problems that we used to work on are tiny by today's standards. And so what everyone was doing was they were they were kind of looking and moving into successive domains where the availability of the data kept getting larger and larger and larger. So in the early 90s, I was working for a company. Uh, I was working for the big German multinational, Siemens, and their, um, their U.S. corporate research lab in, in Princeton – and we're we're working on bioinformatic problems, and then I was working on industrial process control. So then I get into the hundreds of thousands of data points, and then we started doing large-scale data mining, where maybe we're looking at mid, uh, millions of points, data points. But to really go beyond that, you had to start looking at the web. And so it was really I I actually felt that I w- I made the transition late in my career. Mm-hmm. So it was 1998. My book had just come out. And I was, you know, I was looking to hit the reset button in my life in a lot of different ways. I wanted to, you know, change research directions. I wanted to, you know, change whom, whom I was working for. So I I walked around the corner and I started of um, I got a job at NEC Research Institute, which is a different lab in Princeton um, that had a little bit more of a of a more open environment and, and, and more freedom for the for the research scientist. And, you know, my good friends, uh, Steve Lawrence and and Lee Giles were at the at the research institute at the time, and they were trying to convince me, come on, work with us, publish with us, you know, collaborate with us on these uh, on these web problems. And um, and so they were the ones that really kind of. You know pulled me into looking at the web as a as a single holistic artifact to be studied on its own and so it was around ninety eight and then ninety nine that I really in earnest started getting into web scale data mining and at that time i I had started building out um, much of the infrastructure that you would see in a commercial search engine at that time mm-hmm. so we had um, you know I think you know so th- there were some Papers that came out of this time frame. Um, some of those papers got a lot, a lot of attention. Um, but I, in, in truth, I was actually more—I um, I, had—I was prouder of the infrastructure that we built at NEC because we—we we design, I designed this system that was crawling vast portions of the web. And um, we were able uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s to suck in hundreds of millions, you know, crawl hundreds of millions of web pages, um, pull in their entire link structure. I remember um, everyone thought I was a little bit crazy, but I was one of the few people that actually invested long on the Itanium architecture mm-hmm. because it was the first time that you could buy a machine for less than ten thousand dollars that had 64 gigs of ram in it so i i I bought a couple of itaniums with my research budget loaded them up with ram and i would suck in the whole of you know the web graph that we could we could crawl at that time which had billions of edges in it so we were we were doing some really neat stuff and um and it's kind of fun i was I, I think that that piece that i loved the most working on was the um was the web crawler because we had a single web crawler on a single machine that could saturate a t3 connection which uh, t3 is at a uh, 45 megabits mm-hmm. and so a single crawler saturating you know a, a 45 megabit uh dedicated t3 which was the sort of um network connection that uh, uh that you would find it you know that would serve a whole lot you know so i was it was it, it, there was a certain amount of pride to be able to write something that could like saturate a, a network pipe that big um that was a lot of fun as well so we yeah a lot of us started uh doing uh, who had been in, in machine learning started going towards web scale stuff because that's where the data was
0: right that's where the there was there was so much data that like it, that was the exciting
1: Field. Yeah, but but you know we say it's so much data, but back then, so it was um Lee Giles and Steve Lawrence, my my good friends that I'd mentioned before, that were the guys who actually did the very first study for the size of the web, mm. and um, they published some articles in Science and the Nature, and that at that time they estimated the scale of the web to be less than a billion web pages. Mm-hmm. And I was part of a research group that validated a later claim, I'm going to think that came out around 2001, by InkTomi when they had the first evidence that they had successfully crawled a billion web pages. Mm. And that, that was like a new milestone. And, um, and so I actually, I, I validated their claims. I worked with them on the side on that. And that was around 2001, I think. And so, um, it's kind of funny just to think about that. That was a big deal that people were doing press releases. The web is provably in excess of a billion web pages. And now, you know, like a billion pages is like, doesn't even matter. Right, you know, it's right. just it's trivial.
0: Um, you know what I'd like to do? I, I want to pause on your career history right now and, sure. um, to whatever extent you, you're, you're interested or feel comfortable, um, sort of for the layperson, paint a picture of search at that time. And, yeah. and, and it's going to be impossible for us to do this without you know, mentioning Google. And so in, in a sense, let's start with, on a, on a layman's technical level, I think most people have a basic understanding of like the back rub and, and, and the algorithms that, that made Google work better. Uh, from a layman 's sort of technical perspective, what was search before google technically was it based off of you know what people understood from from database searches and things like that
1: Well, we used to joke that um, the state of the art for search engines was grep for the web grep is a um... Um, a Unix command line tool. I think the G-R-E-P and grep stands for Grab Regular Expression Program or something like that. It's basically, you know, the way you use grep is you type in a string. uh, Well, you type grep and then a string and a list of files that you want to search over. And then it, it pulls occurrences of that string that you're looking for and prints it out on the on the command line so you can see that oh the file foo over there had the 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 search term that you're looking for and and, and you know there was no notion of relevance and it was very basic so the very first search engine that um people looked at as uh, having in some sense tackled the big problem was altavista Vista. Um, um now of course there was there were other uh, systems like Gopher and other things, and that were nominally solving very similar problems, but from a commercial perspective, people looked at AltaVista as, as like the granddaddy of them all. Mm-hmm. And um, and what AltaVista did was, you know, not much more than grep for the web. You type in a couple of terms, and it just shows you a long list of links to pages where that term occurs. They, of course, wanted to make it better, and so they, they you know, started working. That's, that's where a lot of things related to you know, some of the early work and information retrieval got to be applied on, onto AltaVista. But the, um, the techniques that they were using were, were pretty basic and mostly just doing little things like um, we have a very common metric called TFIDF. Um, that stands for term frequency, inverse document frequency. And it basically says that it says two things. One, the more times that the word occurs in a particular page, the higher up in ranking it should be. Number one, Mm -hmm. number two, and and notice that if you're typing in multiple search terms, you got to aggregate that. And number two, the weighting, you know, so let's say you you do a search that has two terms in it, like foo and bar, and let's say foo occurs. A lot in some pages but not so much in others and bar is a lot in some pages but not enough in others you have to kind of um given a result we'll have a blend of including foo and bar and so you have to figure out like which is more important the foo or the bar Well, the inverse document frequency um, portion of that metric you know tf idf inverse document frequency for idf that's the piece that says if a term is less common in the larger corpus then it's probably more noteworthy that you've, that it's, that it's a hit. Okay. Uh, And so, so ranking at that point was simply saying if the word occurs and it occurs a lot and it's a rare word, well then it should appear up high. And, and that's kind of like that first generation, Later on, um, people started getting a little bit more clever about what they were considering the text of a document and how they would weight text in, in, in certain contexts. So, you know, you have text that is in the body of a document. You have text that's actually in the first thousand words. Maybe that's a little bit more important. You have text that's in the title of the document because we have a tag that says title. And then there's text that occurs in other pages but are part of the anchor text for the link that points back to the site that you're that you're interested in. And while AltaVista didn't get a lot of credit for this, I, I believe they were the ones that actually were the, were the first and actually um, uh, doing that. Sometimes Google gets credit for that. That was another innovation that, that that also Google ran with as well. But this idea of treating anchor text as part of the text of the document had a huge impact because oftentimes the phrase that people use to title or re, or call out a link that they were linking to could have been actually more important, more indicative of the content and of its importance than it was um, um, than, than uh, the text that actually occurs in the document itself. And so that's kind of like what AltaVista and there were other search engine companies like InkTomi and Northern Light mm-hmm. and then all the web. And they were doing a lot of text-based stuff. And then you know Google with BackRub, um, which later became known as PageRank. They, I mean, that big innovation was taking that link structure and trying to make some inferences around what it said about the importance of individual results. So in general, the general intuition is the more links that you that that point to. You, the uh, um, uh, the more important the pages. There's some subtlety to it because it's not just it doesn't it's not just a matter of that pages point to you, but it's it, it's 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 important that important pages point to you, um, and that's a little that that creates a recursive definition. So a page is important if other important pages point to it, the, and so the this, authority of
0: those incoming.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. that's that's actually so. Yes, you can think about it as like a measure of authority, but that's actually kind of a, an interesting side note. There's this uh, um, brilliant, brilliant um, computer scientist and friend of mine. His name's John Kleinberg. I, I, I think John's still at Cornell. Uh, John invented an algorithm called the hubs and authority an authorities algorithm that at that time in the late '90s was. Thought of by many people as like a better version of PageRank, Um, but it never really had the commercial success of PageRank, but it explicitly sought to identify what sites are authoritative and which sites are hubs. And so this came up with a two way recursive definition. So an authoritative website is a website that is referred to by many hubs and a hub website is a website that refers to many authoritative hmm. websites. So that you get this co-recursive definition. And so so this is when in the late 90s, everyone started you know, thinking about this link structure. That's when I was, I, I actually did, um, the research that I was doing that was in that vein that got the most attention was something that I called the community algorithm. So I invented something called the web community algorithm that had a similar recursive feel to it. It defined a community of pages To have that recursive property that they refer to more pages inside their own community than outside of their community. So you could kind of recursively define what was a community, what was a tightly cohesive group of pages that in their linkage seemed to refer to the same sort of topical theme. And, uh, so a lot of us were, were doing stuff like that. Some, you know, my, my, my results got a lot of attention, not as much as uh, PageRank page and, and the hubs and authorities algorithm, but you know, uh, I'll hang my hat on it. Um, mm-hmm. just in, in no problem with that. But, um, um, and I, and I should also say one thing that's really interesting is around 1999 Brewster kale, mm-hmm. um, who's, who's best known as the founder of the internet archive. He reached out to me, Lee Giles, and Steve Lawrence, you know my friends that I was referring to earlier, and we all uh, decided to organize the first ever uh, internet, uh, what did we call it? It was the the first uh, internet archive or internet colloquium or something like that. it was It was event that only about fifty people attended but attending you know Larry Page was the person that the one person that attended from Google to represent Google and Northern Light they who that was the biggest search engine of the world at that time you know, I think their CEO was there. Um, there was representation from Alta Vista. I think John Kleinberg was there. So where there's this one event in 1999, where I think at least in my mind, the 50 most important people mm-hmm. in the, in the web at that point, I think were, were present in one room and <laughs> arguing. So it was, uh, it was, it was a great moment for me.
0: Um, just real quickly, you know, in, in the business histories especially, it's sort of like um, uh, Backrub comes along and, and Google comes along and, oh, search is solved. When, when, when Back when Backrub's published, what's the reception among people like you, the community you're talking about? Like, was it like, oh, my God, a thunderbolt out of the sky, this is incredible, or was it just another interesting idea?
1: So I have to tell you, um, my first exposure to it wasn't as an academic, it was as a user. And when Google came out, you know, back when it was at Stanford, it was just a research project. And you, you know, we were all kind of acclimated to using AltaVista. Google at that point felt revolutionary because it it felt almost like it was reading your mind compared to what we were used to because the introduction of PageRank as a score for how you order these things suddenly suddenly became this powerful way of separating the wheat from the, from the chaff. And, um, you know, so you would, you would type in something seemingly generic like, um, you know, back then what, what, what would be a good example? If you, if you typed in flowers, you know, you would, you would get these definitive sources to like, you know, maybe it's FTD.com mm-hmm. or, or, or something like that. But, but, you know, notice that the word flower wasn't necessarily in the title, but what was really important was finding the sort of definitive answer. And and so Google was just it was it was um, it was a little bit of a lightning bolt. I think I think we were all kind of blown away at just how good, how much, how big of an improvement it was. And then as as an academic reading the paper, um, you know, it's a simple paper actually, and the math isn't that difficult. Um, um, but it's, it's, there's so much elegance and so many, um, so there's a, I think of page rank as this amazing convergence of, of, uh, engineering, mathematics and, um, and nature, uh, in a weird way. And what I mean by that is, okay, at the heart of the page rank calculation is this certain type of mathematical operation that deals with advanced math topics like, um, Eigenvectors and um, eigenvalues, and there's a, a and, and if you're familiar with linear algebra, there's this family of algorithms that are collectively referred to as power method iterations, and PageRank is in fact a power method iteration. Um, and so I, I just threw out a whole bunch of gobbledygook. Let me let me explain what it. <laughs> let me bring Please bring it do, yes. to <laughs> a tangible point. What's amazing about it is that a power method technique like PageRank did not have to actually work. There was nothing that guaranteed that it would be a practical application. And the reason why is we understand the mathematics of power method iterations very well. And we know that they have a convergence rate that is a function of the mathematical properties of the network that you're applying it on top of. Now here's, here's the thing. Most random networks that you, – if you were to write an algorithm that would randomly generate networks, you know, um, most of the, the networks and the adjacency matrices that you would tease out of it, a power method iteration will not be effective. It will converge too slowly. But it turns out that the sort of networks that emerge in this organically grown thing like the internet – where you have pages that there's an incentive structure underneath the hood for um, things to kind of refer to other popular things and for linkage to be somehow topically related. That actually constrains the space of networks um, to be something that's a little bit more orderly. And in that family of networks, we have very good mathematical models for their properties. And it turns out that a power method iteration like PageRank is wildly successful and converges amazingly fast. So here's the point. It's simple, elegant math that could have worked or could not have worked. But it turns out that there's syst- there's uh, systemic properties of these sort of organically grown networks like the internet And web pages and all that usage and and all those different things that almost encourage page rank like algorithms to work really well. And so interesting math, interesting kind of natural property of these organically grown networks turning into a killer application. Mm-hmm. And that's why I kind of, and so I actually used to use that in some sense as my yardstick with whatever I was going to work on as a, as a researcher, I really wanted to find something where there was an interesting story in terms of the math, the engineering in terms of what I could kind of build and, and how it related to the natural world in some way. And that's, and that's what lit me on fire. And I think a little, you know, a lot of other academics on fire was just God damn, this thing is so useful. The beautiful serendipity of that, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. All right, so I'm going to try to get your you back in the story here, but to <laughs> to do that, um, if you could again to whatever degree of detail you want to, and I know you weren't there for this, but for the listener, um, sort of describe uh, what goto.com was um, and and how it got started before it, it turned into Overture, and then you got there.
1: Yeah, yeah. So GoTo.com was actually founded, I think, in late 1998 or early 1999, around the tam- very close to the same period that Google was incorporated as well. And, and in some ways, GoTo was like the anti-Google, um, not not in any philosophical way. It's just that the direction that they were going towards was a tackling a set of problems that existed on the web that were very different than what Google was was tackling. Um, Bill Gross, who's a very well-known person in the in, in you know the 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 entrepreneurial um, and big thinker community in general uh, today. Um, he was the founder of of GoTo.com, and uh, as he was the founder of, I think like 50 other companies, he's, he's one of the most prolific people you'll ever meet.
0: Right, and and, and and in the late 90s, he has Idea Lab, which is a yeah, classic it's, it's incubator a, sort that's of company. company. Yeah,
1: that's right. And he, they're just churning out churning out startups. Uh, GoTo is probably the biggest success story that ever that ever came out of uh, Idea Labs. But the the concept of of GoTo is is so it's such an amazing story um because it's one of these things where initially everyone thought it was the stupidest idea you could imagine but there was something utterly brilliant in it and so what go to does in 1999 and remember um you might actually so so at that time banner ads were the thing mm-hmm. and and I, I I I can't remember who did it, but I used to I, I know I know the person who like created the very first banner ad, um, and 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 also you know I know right. Mark Craig, and, and Craig Kanerik yeah. and uh, whole, whole yeah whole yeah, group yeah. of people yeah 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 so so and the very first banner ad I think it, it went for like a thousand dollars per impression or something oh. really mm-hmm. ridiculous, and then there was a crash in that market where because people couldn't quite justify the advertising costs without any sort of any sort of return on it. So there is this economic uncertainty as to, okay, how is the internet going to make money and is advertising part of that story? So bill gross has this brilliant idea that seems stupid to everyone else. And that idea is we're going to go to people that want to advertise. We're going to have them bid on a cost per click model. If we show their ad, that's going to look like a search result. Um, that is a response to a user query um, how much are they willing to pay for the click? And we're going to rank order the results that the user sees, and you know, kind of um, put that as a layer on top of the normal organic search results. And it will be ordered rank. It will be ordered by cost per click. So it was kind of sometimes it was referred to as a pay-for-play kind of uh, derisively. Um, it's uh, um, you know, and it seemed to a lot of people, myself included, as kind of like this slimy idea. It's like mm-hmm. really you're going to you're, you're you're going to tell me that publishers or content owners are going to have websites and instead of just showing like pure organic search results you're going to layer on this layer of results that's actually advertising, but looks like search results, and everything there is gonna be rank ordered by their willingness to pay, that just seems evil or wrong or slimy or something like that. Well,
0: let me do this, let me, let me be explicit about this. So, um, cause I'm gonna base this off of my experience with GoTo. So you would go to goto.com and you would type in flower, and mm-hmm. the results that you would see, it would look like any other search engine, but what mm-hmm. would turn out is that the top result would be the person that paid the most per yes. click. And then yes. the second would be the second most. The third would be the third exactly. most. Exactly. And then if, exactly. You, if you ran out of uh, people that had bid, then you would get actual search results from some other licensed yeah, technology. Right, right.
1: That's right. And so go2.com, and then the name go2.com reflects the initial strategy that it was it was Bill's ambition that this would be a destination website on its own. And that people would come and just search. And so they would come here and search when they were seeking to buy something. So if you go and you search for flower on goto.com, you want a florist. Whereas if you're looking for gardening results or, or tips for gardening, um, you would go to someone else. And, and that was kind of like the, the the basis. Keep in mind, what this meant is that every single query, as a user types it in, is actually doing a real-time auction that has to have some some sort of account settlement at the, at the end of the click. Because user searches, it, maybe they're searching on flowers, the results come. They click on one or more of those links. Those those, those um, uh, advertisers, they had a cost per click that they were willing to pay. That cost per click gets deducted from their account uh, in real time. Um, and so what this meant is that there is the, the paid search system was in some ways at that time uh, scaling up to do more little financial transactions than, say, all the credit card companies combined. And so – what happened was is that the the the, the success of go to as its own destination site was you know hit and miss. Okay. It was it wasn't quite the case that um people would necessarily want to come directly to it. But where it really, really took off was when Um, and I, you know, I honestly, I don't know who started pushing the, the, um, syndication model first, Mm -hmm. but let me just say, I think, you know, uh, I worked very closely with Ted Meisel, who was the CEO of Overture, which was the, what, you know, go to would later change its name to Overture. Mm -hmm. That change was a change in strategy, not just a change in name. So they went from being a destination website to being a platform. And as a platform, it meant that they had three constituents. One, they were. Um, Doing deals with the likes of AOL and MSN and Yahoo and others and AltaVista in order to get a deal where when the search query was issued, say, on a Yahoo, the query would be federated out to Overture. Overture in 40 milliseconds would send back. The top-end results back to Yahoo, and then Yahoo would interleave or, or or give a presentation that showed the Overture paid results on top, say three results there, mm-hmm. and the rest of the organic ones below. You know what? So let me... <laughs> sorry. Okay, yeah, no, so no, you, ahead, you, you, you
0: went to Yahoo, you typed in flowers. You would yeah. still get the, the results that Yahoo traditionally gave you, it's just that now, because of this partnership with Overture, the top yeah. three, and they would probably be labeled ads, would be coming in from overture in this sort of partnership
1: deal. that's right and so and so the the beautiful thing about this i said before everyone thought it was stupid and then it turned out that it's absolutely like one of the most brilliant ideas ever on the internet the reason why it was so brilliant is that there are three constituents here uh if you think actually maybe four okay so there's well, there's there's Overture itself, which is the platform, so let's leave them off. But there are the destination websites like the Yahoo's, the Amazon's, the AOL's of the world, number one. There are the advertisers um, that are willing to pay to have their stuff shown. And then there's the end users. And so in economic theory, there's this um, there's this concept that's sometimes referred to as, as incentive alignment. Um, and so in economics, it's a good thing when – there is a choice when, when many different independent actors can make a, a choice and kind of converge on a, on a shared outcome. And if their incentives are aligned in the sense that if you make a choice, it's good for everyone rather than um, good for only one of them, you end up with really interesting outcomes because it's, it's a, um, it, it almost has like a non zero sum dynamics. It's win when, when. And so let me expand on that for a little bit, what that means. So, in the past, for the user, if they were searching for flower, maybe they had that, a commercial intent, maybe they had an informational intent. But now, with the web page being split so that there was commercial stuff on top and non-commercial stuff below, it now suddenly got a lot easier for a user to quickly say, oh, I want to buy, boom, it's up top. Oh, no, I want to research, boom, it's below. Okay, so that actually improve the user experience from a relevance perspective in a way that no one had really anticipated and at overture we had done tons of studies that showed that that people really did like the overture results and 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 especially when they had a commercial intent so good for the users right number number one number two the advertisers absolutely loved it because it gave the highest quality pairings that any of them had ever seen before and we had done also Lots of analysis to figure out, like, what was the cost to acquire a new customer as compared to paid search, to yellow pages, to advertising on radio, to advertising on television, to doing an internet banner ad? And it was, and it was shocking how efficient um, paid search was. Page search was in many cases 10 to 100 times cheaper to acquire a customer that way than through any of the other channels. And can you, then, can I, I, I yep.
0: so rarely do this, I'm gonna interject Go a, a personal experience here. I, I, Go I, I still rarely do this, but I, I think it's relevant. 1999, I'm, uh, I just finished college and uh, I, I'm starting a little thing that will eventually evolve into my first company, uh, editing college essays and, and, and term <laughs> papers and things like that. And right. I, I throw $40, on to mm-hmm. go to. I know it was go to. It was not overture yet. I remember this super clearly. I throw forty dollars on. Not much, but mm-hmm. I can afford to lose forty dollars, and I got eighty dollars back. Yeah, in yeah. twenty four hours. And I and I said to my. I remember thinking I can do this all day every day if every forty dollars yeah. I throw down gets me eighty dollars.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was magical. And I have to tell you that effect wasn't just for advertisers that benefit. This is actually kind of like a. Um, I want to I want to complete sort of the, the the story of how all these different constituents related and mm-hmm. the incentive alignment piece. But in a similar way, that observation that you just made, there was a, a variation of that that literally changed how I would think about how to run a research lab. Mm. Um, and 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 because of that property that you just mentioned, but okay. I'll, I'll, okay. I'll I'll circle back to that. Yeah. So so anyhow. Um, um, the, the third constituency here is the the owners of the destination sites like Yahoo and AOL or whatever. And you have to remember, these were companies that were that were, you know, in some way they were flying high because everyone wanted a piece of the action, but they weren't making any money. Okay, they were they were losing money, and suddenly Overture comes along. And Is minting money and they're not just minting money for themselves. They're minting money for everyone else because so Let's say someone searches on flower The advertiser is willing to pay a dollar per click for that click through so overture gets the buck um, After that the user clicks on it They would tend to pay somewhere in the early days like you know 70 cents on the dollar It would later get into the 80 cents on the dollar mm-hmm. so they pay 80 80 cents or so to a yahoo and they'd keep 20 cents for themselves right and 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 then the user would end up with with something really good as well And so when yahoo became profitable, it was entirely because of their relationship with overture And what overture was doing for their for their search economics and so that was Amazing to kind of witness this sort of shift and in, in the advertising industry and the internet and everything else and to kind of complete the circle and go back to the point that I was making about mm-hmm. how I would do research, well, when you view this sort of – this economic system that has these three constituents and queries are coming in on one end, clicks are coming out – and clicks and dollars are coming out on the other, it's now kind of like this living, breathing uh, algorithm that's running in the wild. And I, and to kind of think about this now, I um, – it was 2004 that – Yahoo acquired Overture. Mm-hmm. I was the, I and I never even said what my role was at Overture. <laughs> so in 2002, I joined Overture as their first and only Chief Science Officer. And you were so, you were recruited? yeah Yeah. oh yeah yeah Mm -hmm. so i had been living the fat academic life of sorts at uh, the nec research institute i was doing some of my web scale data mining research also some machine learning stuff i was very big in support vector in the you know in support vector machines at that time um and i you know the role that i had at nec was the chariest role you could imagine i had a big research budget i could do whatever i wanted to do with it and I was allowed to occasionally lecture at Princeton. I had two really awesome PhD students that year. You know, so it was like the best of all worlds. I was I was an academic, but I didn't have to pay the academic price of living this publisher parish track or or you know, cause I had tenure also at, at NEC. So it was like this 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 ideal academic existence for a while. And so, um, and my, my research was getting some, some, some attention, you know, like I, you know, mainstream press and others were talking about it, but overture comes knocking on my door and, um, and I had, you know, to kind of put it in perspective, 2002, I was living on a tree farm with my wife and had this, uh, you know, this, this ideal academic life. And I thought that I had my, I I thought that I was living in my forever home and working in my forever job. I had no intention of moving. And when I learned about Overture and I spent days and days out there, you know, the interview loop was with Overture was no less than three interviews. And the last one was three days long. Um, it was, um, what I learned it, I, I felt like that it was my gosh, I'm like it's – like, it's like Gutenberg walked up to me and said, hey, I have this idea for this thing I call a printing press with movable type and would you like to help me work on it, right? It was – I felt like I was invited to participate in something that was going to be historic. And so I sold everything. My wife and I, we literally loaded up in a one-way RV rental. We loaded our two dogs. We didn't have kids at the time, and we drove cross country because we didn't want to fly our dogs. And we moved out to Pasadena. We I lived in a you know a rental place in downtown Pasadena that was like 500 square feet with my wife and two giant dogs. And I worked in an office that um, there was my research team had about a dozen people at that time, and we were all crammed in one room that may have been maybe you know like 100. Or 150 square feet. And I had a desk that was made out of the stereotypical, you know, door on top of like filing cabinets. And I shared that desk with someone else and we didn't even have air conditioning in the room. So it was it was like this crazy startup environment, even though it was already a public company. Mm-hmm. And so my challenge. As I go from this academic environment to working a corporate environment, now I'm like an executive, and, and that's something that I never thought I was going to be doing. My job was to figure out how to take that living, breathing, organic ecosystem of, of paid search and make it better, right? And up until that point, and I want to give you a little bit of context. Now, I've worked at that point. For university research labs, government research labs, corporate research labs. Mm-hmm. And I had seen the rise and fall of research labs where they have that pendulum swinging from pure research to applied. And that pendulum swinging oftentimes resulted in, in entire research labs collapsing. So I would I, – I mean maybe not collapse in the sense that it's a, a complete failure. But it could be a collapse where like the best talent leaves. And so I saw that happen at Siemens. I saw that happen at the NEC Research Institute. So I had very, very strong ideas around what made research labs fail. And part of that had to do with the funding models for how they justified their existence. And when the pendulum would swing towards, okay, you gotta show some value for your work, people, researchers would spend so much time trying to um, take their research and turn it into an application. And oftentimes they weren't very good at doing that that um, they would would fail on both producing an application and in producing novel research. And so it was almost like doomed to fail. And so when I came to Overture, here was this living, breathing ecosystem. And the first research project that we had lined up, which I didn't pick, I kind of inherited, was we need to introduce spell correction. And I know that sounds like so trivial, okay? But spell correction... In a way that where you're building the spell corrector as derived from data was kind of a new thing at that time and here was the challenge we had committed to the whole world that we were only going to do exact match search okay at overture and the reason why we said we're only going to do an exact match search is because the advertisers were worried that we if we didn't do exact match that we would be scamming them and so to be clear what this means is An advertiser comes and they're placing a bid, they're bidding on the word flowers. They're not bidding on roses. They're not bidding on flowers, Los Angeles. They're bidding on flowers and they only wanted things that matched exactly flowers. Now, the challenge is, is that, okay, flowers, that's easy, right? But, you know, back in that time, Britney Spears was, you know, kind of like on top of the pop charts. And there were on the order of like two dozen ways that people spelled Britney Spears. <laughs> only one of them was correct, but the whole world thought there were at least 24 different ways that you spelled Britney Spears. And for the advertiser, that meant that they were only getting one of those spellings, the correct one, but they missed out on all the incorrect ones. So a compromise that we that we kind of bridged with our advertisers is like, look, OK, how about we go beyond exact match? But we do things like spell correction. So you're getting all the relevance that you want it before, but we're just – we're correcting for these inefficiencies. And so the technique that we use, we had a – I love setting these names because it's so neat to see where these people went. So there was a PhD student that was part of my research team. His name is John Carnahan. He went on to become like the, um, the chief uh, data scientist – or the chief data officer of, I think, of News Corp, or, mm-hmm. you know, like a major, you know, major company. But John and I and a bunch of other people were sitting down in this room, and John's PhD work, he was working on a technique to do approximate matching in long discrete sequences for bioinformatics, okay? So he is, has this technique that he's been working on for how do you see if two different strings of DNA are close enough, right and this technique that he came up with was a weighted edit distance and so what that means is that you say that things are similar if the number of like inverting the characters or deleting one or inserting a number if you count the number of edits that it takes to make one thing match another that's the edit distance now what john observed in his research is that certain edits are More common than others and so we should weight them differently at when we try to assess whether two things are similar or not so for example Because for example the layout of the keyboard and going back to Britney Spears It might be more common for people to accidentally insert a T instead of an R Because mm-hmm. T is next to R on the keyboard and so however if they put in a vowel, an O instead, which is way over on the other side of the keyboard and doesn't sound anything like that, that even though from an edit distance distance perspective, those are the same edit distance, we would be—we would conclude that T is much more likely to have been a mistake for, you know, for BT is closer to BR than BO is to BR. You know, if you're thinking about the initial characters of Brittany. Right. And, um, And so John came up with this technique that he had developed for bioinformatics, but he scanned the entire corpus of, you know, misspellings for things that we had. To learn what were the what were the weight proper weightings for different types of misspellings, and came up with this technique for 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 correcting. You know, we we yes, we could identify that all those different misspellings of Brittany were in fact should be mapped to the one canonical one, and and that seems like such a simple innovation. But we you know we had we were at this time. Keep in mind, Overture is handling 60% of the search queries of the world.
0: Mm-hmm. Because they, they, they're, they're partnered with all the big We were the big boys. Yeah.
1: We yeah. were we were the big boys. In, in like a 2002-2004 time frame, we were the big boys. We had 60% of the query traffic of the whole world going into our system. And so we would have to do that complete match and au- real-time auction in about 50 milliseconds was our limit. And we, and then we had to return the results in 50 milliseconds. So that meant that our budget for doing the spell corrector was five milliseconds Mm. when when we piece it all together. So going back to the research and everything like that. So we had this, you know, this whole project, whatever we inserted, this spell corrector into the pipeline. It's hitting 60% of the world's traffic. And in one year it, I think, I think we calculated it was going to make, you know, at least $20 million. I think. Okay. So this mm-hmm. is like, you know, this is around 2002 or something like that. I might be, God, I hope I didn't drop a zero. Yeah. I think it was going to, it was going to add $200 million, no, no, $20 million, 20 million in, yeah. re, in, in revenue to the Overture bottom line. And that was like, that was almost like a five or 10% lift in their revenue, <laughs> you know? So this was, so going back to the whole research thing, I, it used to be if you worked in a research lab, you'd have to wait five years. For your research to finally make it into a product that you can point to and say, yeah, I made the world a better place. Mm. And here what we did was we shipped an algorithm. And in 24 hours, we're estimating, holy crap, we're going to make $20 million for the company. And so when I had my conversations around what my research budget should be. For the first time ever, you know, and that's at this point, I've been, you know, I've been doing research for like 15 years at this point. I could actually have a very, I could be standing on firm ground um, at when I was justifying the expense for having a research lab. So um, that completely, it, it, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that the data driven nature of the internet has fundamentally changed how we think about. Executing a research agenda within a company because the ROI now is so much more shorter term and clear and transparent in terms of figuring out whether the research actually paid off or not. Mm -hmm. And so this was kind of like you know what I was thinking about in this 2002 to 2004 time frame. But we were we were we were slowly innovating on top of what we had already built. Um, and Yahoo would come to acquire us in 2004, but then there was this juggernaut called Google. That All was right. like, let me
0: let me sl- at our heels. let me slow you down for a second. I'm, I'm gonna sure. for for the context. I, we're, we're, I think we should underline this is after the bubble bursts, um, yep. and a lot of people are not making money. You know. People like Amazon, Yahoo are down to five dollar stocks, and and people are wondering if they're going to last. And so there's this window of time where Overture is basically the only guys left at Overture and eBay, maybe that are that are yeah, still making money. I
1: think we were on track to make. I think we're around that time frame. We we're making about eight hundred million in revenue. We had about two hundred million in the bank, and we we saw that uh, we saw that there was a war emerging. Um, so what happened was, and and I have to and. Um, I'm gonna make a little kind of meta aside here. Mm. I can keep talking about this for yeah. a long time, yeah, 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 yeah. and I don't have a hard stop. So I'd I love to tell the complete story, yeah. Rather than artificially kind of time bound this, but yeah. um, What's your hard stop, by the way? I don't have one. Oh, I you took a day off. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, so anyhow, uh, uh, so so keep in mind um, what a lot of people don't realize. So you know, Google is not a public company at this time but they are a company and they're making maybe on the order of like 20 million dollars in revenue a year and they're making it on their search appliance. They were selling a piece of hardware that had a search appliance built into it and that was I you know in that kind of early 2000 I'm thinking now closer around 2000 2001 their search appliance at that point may have been their their biggest money maker. Overture is killing it. Overture is making more money Overture is serving more queries, has more advertising partners, has more destination sites, has better monetization, better cost per click, everything, killing it in every way. But um, here's the thing that I don't think a lot of people understood, um, and I want to make it a little aside. Uh, you know, There's this concept called the innovator's dilemma mm-hmm. that um, was introduced by Clay um, 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 Christensen. Christensen, yes. Uh, um, Is he still at Harvard or Cornell? Cornell. I think he's at Cornell. Um, Anyhow, Clay Christensen coined the phrase innovator's dilemma. And it's a beautiful concept that has been used to study economic cycles and trends and winners and losers and things like that going back a long time. And I – what a lot of people don't realize is that Overture had in some ways painted itself into a corner um, in a manner that was a – nearly perfect example of the innovator's dilemma. So the innovator's dilemma, um, in the simplest terms is that the first in an industry, whatever it we'll tend to focus on a small number of big customers that have a lot of money and they try to solve the problems of the big customers with a lot of money first, because that's where the easy money is, Right. Um, I mean it's e- – it, like you, you you, do one deal and that deal is big, right? Um, and because you're – the innovators, the first in the industry, are focusing on the smaller number of big customers, what they ignore are the larger number of small potential customers. Mm-hmm. And so the theory of the innovator's dilemma then says, well, once the, you know, the incumbent builds out and proves out that something could – you know, is that a, that a marketplace is, is valuable, a newcomer will come on the scene and they want to compete. Now, the newcomer can say, I want to compete head-to-head and try to beat them at their own game. But that would be stupid because the innovator already, you know, the first in the market already has that advantage. So the newcomer says, you know what, I'm going to attack. I'm going to go after the customers that they're ignoring. The smaller, I'm sorry, the larger number of smaller customers with less money. And so if they tackle that, then they're going to have to actually learn to be more efficient in what they do because they have to deal with more customers. The, each sale or transaction is smaller in size. The margins, therefore, may not be as good. And so they've got to make up for that with those economic inefficiencies with being more internally efficient for how they do it. And then as you play this out, those newcomers, the efficiencies that they learn from having to work in that manner eventually allows them to then compete head to head with the first original market maker that had been in that market and eventually potentially eat their lunch. Right. And so the conclusion of the innovators dilemma is that if you want to survive long-term, you have to be willing in some ways to act like the newcomer and destroy your own business. Mm -hmm. And so the classic example of this is like initially there were, supercomputers and mainframes and then there were scientific workstations and then there were expensive pcs and then there were cheap pcs and then there's cell phones and then there's commodity cell phones and each time um that these generations you know would happen we'd almost see a um an erosion of the market strength of the of the original innovators that had been focusing on the bigger things. So no one talks about Cray computers anymore. No one talks about some computers anymore. Not a lot of people are even talking about Dell as much anymore. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the, the power in the ecosystem is like where, where cell phones, you know, everything, it kind of goes downhill, uh, where the, where the strength and the, and where the leverage is. And that's the innovators dilemma now. Overture was an innovator, and they were an innovator in the sense that they had a business idea that everyone thought was stupid. And so they made a, a small number of very critically important decisions that, in order to under oh, I'm sorry, to overcome that uncertainty. So I mentioned one of them already. They did exact matching on the query terms. They mm-hmm. could have actually done fuzzy matching right from the get-go. Um, approximate matching, phrasal matching, string, you know, you know, fuzzy matching from the get-go. But the advertisers would have never signed up mm-hmm. because of their uncertainty as to the model. They mm-hmm. also could have gone very broad and said, we want to make this appear on every website in the world. You know, going out, you know, thinking about the distribution of different destination websites. Mm-hmm. But instead, they went to AOL and Yahoo and MSN, the big boys. Mm-hmm. They could have gone to every advertiser in the world and had a self-serve model, um, and they did it. Instead, they um, they went to advertising agencies and big advertisers. They could have uh, also said, well, from a quality perspective, we're going to be somewhat accepting of – of things of different quality from a from a matching perspective but what they also did was they put in place an editorial staff that was over 100 people that would have to editorially approve before before a paid search listing ever went live that that listing was editorially relevant to that keyword and until a human checked off the box and said yes um, we we conclude that that is editorially relevant and high quality. The ad never went live. So in a very real way, they f- chose like like a newcomer in any new industry to focus on the head of the distribution and it completely ignored the long tail. And as they opposed, did that as opposed yeah. to Google and AdWords, which that's right. Does. And that's right. And so what? That's right. And so what? A lot of people don't realize is that. What Google did – so Google went after the same model. It was a model that Overture had proven. They didn't have to overcome that suspend, that, that disbelief that the first generation of paid advertisers and, and other partners had to overcome. And so they could change the model in ways that Overture couldn't change the model. So Google, um, instead of doing exact match, right away, right from the get-go, they did fuzzy matching. Instead of having human editors in the loop to approve them, right away they had click-through rates as a proxy for editorial approval. And so they did this click-through rate-based ordering, and if you had a low click-through rate, they drop you. So that was in some sense automating editorial to the long tail. Right away, instead of going right away to big advertisers, they introduced a self-serve system – where an advertiser could just go onto the website and manage the whole thing and would never have to talk to a person. And then they created, um, you know, their their uh, contextual advertising system that turned potentially any blogger into a, a Google AdWords um, partner. And so it wasn't just like the AOLs and the Yahoos and the MSNs of the world. It could be, you know, your your you know Joe's Fish and Tackle, um, you know, and doing contextual match on that or something like that. And so. On those four dimensions, they went to the long tail, whereas um, uh, Overture had kind of painted itself in a corner with, with working on the head of the distribution. And so we saw this coming. It was kind of like a slow motion train wreck. And um, because around you know, 2002, 2004, we saw that Google was, was – was, you know we were out monetizing them. But they had another trick up their sleeve, which was they, they were able to subsidize the business deals – um, by, uh, uh, basically through the revenue that they were generating on their own website. Now they had Google.com. Mm-hmm. They're running AdWords on Google.com. They're also, you know, they went to AOL and they convinced AOL that you should switch over from Overture to Google AdWords. And one of the things that made that deal work the very first time it wasn't, they weren't able to compete with us. We actually just based on the economics We were absolutely certain at the time that we had better economics and just based on the advertising system itself, we could actually give AOL more money than Google could. But what Google did that we couldn't do was that they took the revenue that was being generated from Google.com and in some ways they shared it with their partners. Um, in order to sweeten the deal. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have a destination site anymore.
0: Okay, I want to underline that because that seems so glaringly obvious to me. Because you you even said early on that... Um, uh, G- Bill Gross once go to originally go to dot com to be this destination site in terms of shopping in terms of intent mm-hmm. that never worked out. But then
1: it stumbled on we had this. to switch to a platform play of being like At, a right. like a platform. That's right. And so
0: the problem is is from a business model perspective, you're dependent on your partners because if you lose your Yahoo deal, you, you lose your AOL deal, you lose distribution. You don't That's have right. anything would, to back up. You uh, lost back, distribution.
1: Yeah. That's right. exactly right. And, and you know what's really interesting? This exact same pattern has played out later with Microsoft mm, and right. Apple. Okay, think yeah. about it this way: it's it's the exact same thing. Microsoft chose not to sell predominantly to consumers, but to base their partner network on on building bridges to hardware manufacturers, to IT departments, to um, you know the you know the I said hardware, but you know the, 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 that big OEM in, uh, ecosystem, um, the you know the software developers, but not so much to end consumers. And they made it a point for for a very long time to never manufacture their own hardware because to manufacture their own hardware would be to compete with their own partners, right? And it wasn't until Apple had that complete integration of the whole stack, where that vertical integration and showed its value and And Apple seemingly coming to eat Microsoft's lunch because of the the whole integrated experience that they were able to produce, that Microsoft finally said, "You know what? We're going to start manufacturing hardware as well." So Microsoft resisted manufacturing hardware because they did not want to they didn't want to be in the consumer business directly. And they didn't want to compete with their own partner network. And we were in the same boat. We thought for a long time that if we had our own destination site, we would be competing with our own partners. But Google had their own destination site and started beating us on deals by virtue of having it. So this is when we made the mad scramble to try to acquire a destination site. So my first day on the job at Overturn, 2002, I actually spent it on the ground in Trondheim, Norway. And, um, and that, that's because that's where the, the main technical team for, uh, a, 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 website and a company. So the website, it was known as all the web mm-hmm. and the company was known as fast search and transfer or fast. And, um, and so I was, you know, making a world tour to, with the purpose of acquiring a search engine. And we were talking to everyone at that time, direct hit, ing to me, all to Vista, all the web, uh, uh, then there were others that I can't remember. Um, and ultimately, and this is this is a really complicated story that I think we should skip. Okay. <laughs> but we ultimately what happened was is InkTomi was our first choice. But for purely business and finance reasons, there were some things that kind of became a deal breaker. And Yahoo ended up acquiring InkTomi. And so we acquired AltaVista and all the web and announced those acquisitions on the same week. They are on the same day of the same week. And so it was it was it was kind of a confusing thing for a lot of people to witness, you know, why are they acquiring two search engines and announcing it at once? And, and so we were with some urgency trying to figure out how we could create, you know, we could revitalize Altavista and all the web so that we could actually have our own source of steady revenue that was independent of a partner and use that to sweeten deals. And the thesis that we had was that Altavista had a brand all the web had technology that we liked better. We would smash them together, and that would work out. But we never really got a chance to execute on that strategy because then, in the same year, Yahoo um, uh, uh, announced that it was acquiring Overture, and I think the deal closed after after that in 2005. Right. So yeah. So so to kind of kind of wrap a bow around that whole thing. Um, we were scrambling to try to create a destination site, but in the middle of that plan, that's when Yahoo acquired us. For me, I would I would go on and, and um, move up to Sunnyvale, and I founded Yahoo Research Labs and was the you know the, the principal scientist of Yahoo for a while, and and the head of corporate R and D for Yahoo, and um, um, and during that time, when Yahoo now now that Yahoo owns Overture that's when they wanted to take a stab at reinventing the whole platform from the mm-hmm. from the bottom up and so it was this 2005 beyond time frame that the project now known as Panama right. got underway at Yahoo which is would...
0: which is an attempt to cuz people forget this yahoo never had its own search it started out as a directory it licensed search from other people that's right and so now when it sees that Google with AdWords and AdSense has has tied this all together, and, and yeah.
1: Overture—it's so... a joggernaut now, and it's like—it seems like that they are close to—I mean—that they have like you know they they've they've in in their embracing of the long tail, they crack the code on the economics, mm-hmm.
0: and so the, the idea is—is is you're bringing in Overture. Uh, they also acquire InktoMe, and they're going to try to tie these together to yep. to to do this amazing economic juggernaut. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: And 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 the, and the and the holy grail for them was to be able to to have an answer to the entire addressable marketplace on all those dimensions that I outlined. So they wanted to have really killer exact match, but also really killer fuzzy match. They wanted to be able to have self-serve uh, for the long tail of advertisers, but also really, you know, premium branded relationships that would be managed through the, you know, the the whole Yahoo network. They wanted to be able to be a syndication partner and and run this whole syndication thing for for other parties like Microsoft, which they did at a time. Um, and so they were they were trying to kind of rebuild the whole thing from scratch. And you know, you know. I, I think you know there's there's a lot that it, it'd be fun to get in a room sometime with some of my my colleagues from Yahoo and mm. kind of debate the pros and the cons in some ways I think the Panama effort was too ambitious mm. and it was um, and and it was I don't want to say it was set up to fail but it was the 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 dynamics of the situation there was no one there was I don't think anyone made a choice that was you know that you could point to and say yes that killed. That, that set up Panama uh, irreversibly on a path to fail. But part of what was going on is that, okay, you had Overture. Overture had acquired AltaVista and all the web. You had Yahoo. Yahoo had acquired Intomi. Okay, so you now have basically five different groups of people that are all supposed to get in the same room and collectively work towards – throwing away everything that they had ever built and rebuilding a, a single unified platform. Well and you that had a pre,
0: of, you had a pre existing culture of Yahoo's only a few years out from having been the king of the web, you know, in the right. late nineties. So all of a sudden you're coming in there to save and 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 revolutionize their business and there's gotta be residual there was culture pushback. that's like, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. And that was that was part of it. And and I wanna say, you know, all of my Yahoo colleagues that I, I worked with at that time are people that I, I keep in touch with to this day and I, I have literally love and affection, and they're awesome people, and I've learned so much from them. But at the same time, I don't think that there was as much appreciation um, from the Yahoo leadership for the complexity of what Overture had built. And they looked at it through the lens that they were familiar with, and from their perspective, it looked to them like they could easily tear it apart, rebuild it, and do it a better job and what they hadn't really kind of understood was number 1 how how technically difficult some of the problems were that that we had solved at overture number 2 how difficult it was actually to build out the ecosystem and get you know cuz you have to think about it this way when you have a company like overture or even a company like microsoft where you have these two-sided network effects it's a living breathing ecosystem and you have a cold start problem in terms of how you how you, you build it and how you grow it. And if you and, – and, and, and these systems do not work if you hit the pause button because if you hit the pause button, the, the ecosystem kind of starts to collapse out from underneath you. And so what I don't think everyone appreciated that was when we hit a partial pause on the development of Overture and putting resources in Overture – and instead shifted everything over to this thing called Panama, which was going to take a couple of years to build out, that allowed Google to perfect everything that they were working on and basically eat Yahoo's lunch. And so there was a time where it just seemed like Google, in terms of their economics, they got so good at matching, so good at self-serve, so, so good at syndication, that whereas in the past I had said that our economics were better than theirs, and by that I mean we had better cost per click, better total revenue. We were able to give better revenue share to our partners, and I had said that in some ways Google was you know, kind of uh, being kind of tricky and that they were subsidizing their deals by throwing in their own destination site revenue mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in order to make the economics add up. They re- eventually reached a point that they were legitimately outperforming us economically, and then they would no longer have to subsidize the deals. Strictly well, speaking. Well, and
0: also, and I'm sorry, I'm going to have to interject again. Personal, no, personal recollections here, but uh, from an outsider, it was always uh, Panama's coming. Panama's coming. It's going to be as yeah. good as Google or better. But I don't think it. Because uh, I'm running businesses that are dependent on on paid search at this point, I don't think we were able to actually use Panama until like 2007 or something. And at yeah, that point, yeah. is is it a question of, well, Google's wrapped up the, the market share at that point. Yeah,
1: yeah, Google owns it. That's right. That's right. And 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 you know, to be you know, um, so I was I was part of the original Panama team, and I thought it was you know this 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 probably says more about me than it does about anyone else. You know, I had seen. You know, keep in mind, I had seen some the signs of what I thought was like a like a the smell of death, if you will. And I thought I I I had I I could detect that Panama was going to fail. Um, even from the earliest days, I thought it was going to fail. Um, because a lot of um, you know, it wasn't easy to move it forward. There was a lot of disagreement on all sides as to what it even was and what the goals were. And so I actually. Um, and, and, keep in mind, there's so many smart people working at Yahoo at the time. One of the, a lot of things, one, one, one player that people forget about, ironically enough, is because he had such a big impact on the world after his Yahoo days was Jeff Weiner. Mm-hmm. Okay. Jeff right. Weiner yeah. yeah. was the head of, of, of the product side and the business side of Yahoo search. And Jeff was a, was a, was a key stakeholder uh, at that point as well. And, uh, but anyhow, 2005 I I you know I I wasn't planning on leaving but the combination of Yahoo of, of, I'm sorry of Microsoft um, I had a, I had a good working relationship with Microsoft for, for years because they were an overturned Yahoo partner and so you know I've been talking to Microsoft execs for you know for what seemed like forever and they'd been trying to recruit me for a long time but it was in 2005 that the combination of the carrot, that Microsoft was kind of dangling in front of me and the, the implicit stick that I was feeling at Yahoo because I, I felt like that there was no way that that effort was gonna succeed, that that's when I personally, I made the leap and said, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go up and, and, and move up to you know, the Redmond area and join Microsoft. So I, you know, from 2005 to 2007, I was a spectator on Panama. Um, not in the trenches with everyone else. Yeah, and and so the stuff that happened afterwards, I can I can kind of only speculate. Um, before we do leave Yahoo, I, this this is
0: something that maybe you'll have to speculate on if you're willing, because obviously you would not have been privy to this sort of thing. But I have to point out because I feel like everyone looking back on this and history looking back on this is screaming, "Wait a minute!" So. Google basically becomes Google by
1: s- not stealing, but by copying. No, no, they literally copied. Right, the, they did, and there was actually there were lawsuits. lawsuits yes, so that's what big, I want, that's what like, I want to say. Yeah, there was what, like. There what was, do you say to
0: why do you say to history about like eventually? I got to point out that that, that Google and, and Yahoo settle that lawsuit. Yahoo gets a ton. I, like I think they eventually saw it for a billion and a half dollars of, of Google stock. Yeah, it was stock. like one
1: point five billion dollars. But uh, in, yeah. in that
0: kind of Clay Christensen sort of model, like, what do you say to history? How could you, how could Yahoo have just given away this amazing business model that that Google just runs with?
1: Yeah, I don't think, um, and and you know I don't I don't want to like like pin the blame on on the Yahoo execs at this time because I was a Yahoo exec at that time, but I don't think collectively, everyone, I don't think anyone really kind of fully understood how time was of the essence and that, and, you know, and, and the innovators dilemma that I spoke of before about, like things happening in the, in the hardware industry, that stuff historically, it takes decades to play out the, this fall, this shift in the search industry, the paid search industry that we just described happened in like two years. Okay. So we got to see a complete full on, um, you know, uh, uh, kind of, uh, uh, gosh, I don't know. I'm trying to come up with the right metaphor, but it's almost like a, not a morality play, but it was like this, this, you know, this, this triumph and tragedy play out
0: tragedy. Yeah,
1: or, yeah. Yeah. Triumph to tragedy in two years, you know, that was, cause again, 2004 Overture owns the paid search industry. 2005 Yahoo is, um, uh, hit the pause button, they they acquired Overture, and everything's kind of stagnating. 2006, Google owns paid search. Mm-hmm. And at that point, they had escape velocity. And what I mean by escape velocity is that they could pay um, destination sites so much more for their search traffic than anyone else could pay that that created this virtuous cycle. The The distribution syndication partners would come to them The advertisers, more than anything else, wanted um, traffic and volume of traffic. And the reason why is that paid search was so much cheaper relative to every other form of advertising that the advertisers weren't really particularly price sensitive. Okay, so if they could only work with one platform, they wanted to go with the one that had the most traffic. So then. You get more advertisers there. With more advertisers, you get more bidders, greater bid density. So you get higher cost per click. And with higher cost per click, you get improved economics by which to get more syndication and distribution partners. So it created this virtuous cycle where the winner – it became winner-take-all. And and literally Yahoo blinked. That's what happened. Yahoo blinked.
0: Mm okay i uh just for the <laughs> for looking out for the listeners here because we're approaching uh, an hour and a half i want <laughs> and i want to ask you what you're what you're up to these days i'm going to slightly yada yada i'm going to say after
1: this like you said, you go to Microsoft live labs um, yeah yeah so i found it i found mm-hmm. it. Microsoft live Labs live Labs was uh, a really kick ass kind of part research institute part you know uh, startup spin out we produced a ton of really um Amazing technologies and product innovations. Mm-hmm. I'll call out some of them. The Sea C- C- Dragon as as kind of like a data visualization mm-hmm. uh, framework that became Deep Zoom and Silverlight. Photosynth, which a lot of people may have heard of when um, Barack Obama was inaugurated the first time. CNN literally uh, crowdsourced creating a 3D um, – environment of the inauguration when the moment happened and they called it the moment Mm -hmm. and also you know photosynth was featured on a csi crime show because it was used to solve a crime um last project that i in fact the one i'm most proud of is one called pivot Mm -hmm. um pivot was a was a was a was a big bold ambitious take on on data and content visualization and interaction and how you would merge the the modes of searching and browsing and discovery. And there's a and great so,
0: uh, there's a great TED talk if you want to see him describe what that is.
1: Oh thank you yeah I think I was on the main stage at TED maybe in 2009 2010. So yeah so I was a technical fellow at Microsoft and run and I founded and ran Live Labs and had a blast there but in 2010. I left, I did a, uh, my own startup called clipboard, mm-hmm. um, clipboard, uh, if you didn't use it, it was kind of like in the intersection between Evernote and Pinterest, you know, it had some of the, the social dynamics and visual flair that, uh, that a Pinterest would have, but it was actually a little bit more useful because you could clip anything uh-huh. like, and and it would preserve the look and feel and fidelity and functionality of whatever it was that you were clipping. And But we, you know, I was stupid as a CEO. I defaulted it to private instead of public. And that probably made a big difference in my competition with Pinterest. But. Salesforce acquired Clipboard, mm-hmm. and then I would—I um, uh, was the CTO of search and data science at Salesforce. Which I was—I was
0: interested to to read. Like people wouldn't think of this, but like search is actually the most widely used feature
1: on Salesforce. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the biggest and the biggest piece of of technological infrastructure. And so I ran all of that, and I rebuilt all of that um, during my tenure there. And um and uh, one thing is to kind of like <laughs> go full circle, remember I said earlier in the podcast that uh, Lee Giles and Steve Lawrence were the first to you know, estimate the size of the web and it was like 700 million and then I was – I worked with Inktomi to prove that it was a billion. Okay? At Overture, our index was 700 billion business <laughs> objects okay and so you know and 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 i i don't know the exact most people peg uh the the web index uh, of uh, google at around 150 billion and uh, uh bing at around you know maybe 80 90 or 100 billion you know you know salesforce 700 billion you know records i mean so so that kind of like i think that's like a really great uh touch point on on uh on you know how things change in as little as like a decade and a half um but anyhow, I left Overture. I'm sorry, I left uh, Salesforce mm-hmm. uh, in the in the late spring of, of 2016 of 2016, and um, basically to just kind of do my own thing. Mm-hmm.
0: So, what's the better question to ask you? What are you working on today, or what are you interested in today um, in terms of what's going on?
1: I, well, I, 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 it's it's. Uh, why don't we merge them? Okay. Uh, okay. So I spend about half my time working with other companies and half my time working on my own personal passions. Um, the stuff that's externally facing with others, I work with a lot of awesome, awesome companies that range from uh, billion-dollar companies uh, to single-person pre-funding, you know, pre, you know, startups with, 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 you know, that haven't had their first bit of funding yet, and everywhere in between. There's about a dozen companies that I that I help in that regard, and I typically do that and the context of 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 being an advisor, the things that I do for them range from, um, you know, um, overall business strategy to technology strategy to, uh, helping them build out their data science and machine learning roadmaps to even product design. Um, or I do, and, and actually the thing that's even most common is I mentor a lot of CTOs and some CEOs as well. But, you know, if you think about a lot of CTOs and startups, that's the first time they've ever had a job like that. And since I've, I've, you know, I've, it's not my first time not my first rodeo, rodeo yeah. Uh, yeah 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 I, I, I help them out a lot with that um, the other stuff that I work that's my own passions is uh, oh and I should say from a topical perspective you know my, my client companies include companies that work in VR EEG uh, machine learning mm-hmm. e-commerce search 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 there's a bunch of search companies um, uh, and so it's all over the map and it's and it's all really interesting as a result the personal stuff that I work on is—it um, it will probably seem a little bit schizophrenic and all over the map, but it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's a number one. It's about some emerging technologies. Number two, it's about some old things that I've been working on for many years, and I want to kind of continue. And I'm also working on another book. But the uh, the things that I'm working on now include IoT, home automation, mobile development, 3D printing. Um, Deep learning and machine learning—that's that's a that's a big push, and uh, some data visualization, and uh, yeah, and then and then the other book that I'm working on, which is in some ways kind of like a almost a, a philosophical follow-on um, to my first book. So,
0: well, let's let's end with this uh, final one then, um, because I'm interested in like. Those are almost buzzwords again now. Deep learning, machine learning, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I'm I'm old enough to feel like there's been several times when I've told me when I've been told that um, things like machine learning were going to change everything, and yeah. and now I'm being told that again. And, and yeah. um, so I guess in a, in a way, my final question is like, should I believe it this time? Are we on Are we on the verge of, of you know, uh, personal assistance and things like that revolutioni- revolutionizing everything?
1: Yeah. So, so great question. And the answer is, so I have, I have a little bit, it's not a contrarian take on this, but uh, I want to answer it in, in kind of two parts. Um, one is I, I, the way I like to kind of segment the universe of artificial intelligence is I think about it as consisting of three different layers at the base is are things and capabilities that look a lot like perception. Okay. And so this is technologies like um, um, image classification. So is there a dog or a cat in the image? And if it's a dog, is it a border collie or a beagle, right? Or face recognition, is that Bob or Sue? Um, that is something that's very much kind of based on the notion of, 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 of taking a very raw input and coming up with like some way of, of identifying uh, which among many possibilities that thing is. So think about it as like classification. So that's something that's – that we've been wildly successful at, deep learning in in particular, and that is um, really on the threshold – not on the threshold – that is at superhuman capability right now. We know how to do that at superhuman capability um, or or at human capability. So we're, we're building these, these visual uh, classification systems and, and other classification systems and other domains that are better than humans, okay? But it's, it is, in some sense, a different type of brute force. You know, you don't look at those systems and say, ah, they are inherently intelligent. No, they are intelligent, they're inherently vastly broad in terms of the universe of data that they've been trained over and deep learning has given us a framework to kind of handle big data sets now. The second layer up layer above that is is what I think of as knowledge representation. And so here is where you would find some sort of mapping between what sort of knowledge and intuition and understanding that people have about how the world – about how things relate to one another. And we we see some examples of making progress in this direction with, uh, for example, um, um, machine translation. So – um, when you when you when you do automatic machine translation of a document from one target language, um, sorry, from one source language to another target language, state of the art for that now is is machine learning based, and it is learning in some ways in a manner that's very similar to the to the visual systems that we alluded to before. But now it's embedding in that structure um, systems that actually get to the conceptual model of how the world works because to perform that translation layer, you have to know that this utterance in this source language like English refers to the concept of like a person walking a dog or something like that. And then you need to know how to invert that going uh, going from a, a, a conceptual representation to a concrete representation. That's in a that's in another language, and and what's the right way of converting that utterance? And so, so that's like the second layer. The third layer is when you start getting into things that are much more uh, that touch upon volition and control, and um and so things like self driving cars are, are 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 you know on the forefront of that. And so what I will claim is that as you go from the base up to the next level. We you know the another uh, interesting challenge is is to make it broadly applicable or as opposed to single purpose. And so w- with the pattern that we're seeing now is that at the perception level, we're going to see systems that, on a regular basis are just simply better than humans. Um, and so I am predicting that, for example, in medical diagnosis, That's something where just like how Google today, you type in a query on the image search and it seems to like to know that there's a border collie inside Mm -hmm. that image, Mm -hmm. okay? We're going to see mammograms and MRIs and and X-rays being read by computers at some point in the near future, and they're going to be vastly better than the human radiologists that are reading those. And that doesn't mean that the job of being a radiologist is going to go away. It means it's going to change. It, 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 In some sense, it's almost going to become a supervisor of these AIs that are really great at, at reading at the very low-level detail. Well, in the um, same
0: way that on, on on factory floors for hundreds of yes. years now, uh, people yes. have just been managing the machines and making sure they
1: don't break down. That's right. You know, And the biggest bottleneck to re- reading an X-ray today is the time of the radiologist having to pour over – with a with a with a you know a magnifying lens over their eye and zooming in on minute detail to try to see what they see and, and actually scanning over the entire area. That's something that's just ripe for automation. And and instead and so if you think about it, there are problems where there is one half of the problem is identifying whether something is novel and worth calling out. And there's another problem of verifying that yes that thing that's novel is in fact really novel and important and so the reason why i'm kind of teasing these apart is that if you can automate the part of calling out any potential area of an x-ray that is noteworthy or novel that is worthy of having the radiologist look at closely then what you've done is you've fragmented you've bisected that problem into a piece that um is right for automation and another piece that's ripe for wisdom, okay? And so one of my favorite expressions, and I said this in my TED Talk, is that, um, and, it's, and it's, a, it's a twist on something that I think Frank Zappa said, is that, is, is the following. Um, knowledge is not data. Uh, what did I say? I said uh, data is not knowledge. Knowledge is not, no shit, not is it. No, data is not information. Information is not knowledge. Knowledge is not wisdom, And my whole point in all that is that as as you start aggregating um, bits and pieces of information at a higher level of abstraction, you actually require greater and broader context to elicit something that one might term as being wise or, 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 or would require a wise person to identify. And this is why I think like in radiology or, or in X-rays, you're gonna see a whole bunch of single purpose AIs that are reading X-rays, but it's gonna be the job of the radiologist now to validate that yes, what they discovered is noteworthy and, and doing that through the lens of their wisdom, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Wisdom as compared to accuracy because machines will be able to get accurate, but it's the wisdom beyond the accuracy.
1: That's right. The machine doesn't know what the, you know, how operable or inoperable that thing is, or what the history is of the patient as to whether they they tend to be cysty or not, or whether, you know, maybe that we already knew about these one things, but we are looking for something new over there. So there's a context. That's going to be really hard for any machine to actually know. And it will be the job of the radiologist to, to, to view those discoveries from the AIs through the lens of, of that, uh, that, that context. So that's one thing that we'll see that, we'll, we'll, that will be very revolutionary. On the other end of the continuum, where we think about things that were actually, were, where the AI is actually literally and figuratively in the driver's seat. That's going to be very. Um, it's not going to be as general purpose as as uh, or or. Um, what I what, I'm, what I mean by that is I think that we're going to see systems like that that are built that are very specialized for that particular task, like driving, right? But that driving car isn't suddenly going to become. Um, self-aware and knowledgeable on the history and the evolution and the evolution of the U.S. road system. Mm-hmm. It has no need to know that, mm-hmm. right? But it, it will get really, really good and better than a human at driving. In between, is uh, you know, where we have knowledge representation and other things in that middle layer, that's where that becomes in some sense almost like the interface between these these things. And I think that as a community, AI researchers have to put a lot more thought into figuring out how we how we bridge between those layers um, because when you're down at the low level of perception, it's really easy to go broad with that because perception is, is you know, whether you're reading x-rays or whether you're reading um, or doing voice recognition, a lot of these things actually start looking very similar and the same tools actually become applicable across a wide variety of application domains. But the sort of techniques that we're using for like self-driving cars, those are much more specialized. Now, what has changed with deep learning is that, and I and I think DeepMind and and other another groups have really kind of paved the way for this, is that they are now where where it used to be that you know to make a good chess player, a good Go player, or a good self-driving car, we, you'd have to do a lot of specialized algorithms for that particular domain. What has changed is that we are now building um, um, deep learning systems that are attempting to solve those same applications, but they're doing it from Tableau Rasa. And what I mean by that is that they're doing it from a blank slate. They have no, they, they haven't been in um b- designed or built in a way that has any special purpose knowledge about say the game of go or the game of chess or or driving a car very little I should say and from scratch and nothing more than f- through reinforcement learning are able to learn a strategy for how to play very advanced games and at a superhuman level or to become better at driving a car than any human could be and so this is where things get very interesting but note that coming up with, a, with a, a deep learning solution to, say, playing a video game, again, that's not going like, to suddenly make itself aware. I think where all of this goes is I think we're all destined to become Borgs. And that might be another podcast uh, for another <laughs> day. But I ultimately think that anything that we do with an AI, there is going to be a way of marrying that with a human that um, the combination of human and computer is better than any AI. Mm-hmm. And I have a whole theory as to how this will all play out, and I think about the research that I do as how it feeds into those scenarios. But that's ultimately what I'm betting
0: on. Well, maybe we'll have to uh, have you back to expound on that theory at some point. But uh, <laughs> first of all, I, I appreciate you bringing Star Trek The Next Generation back into it since we were geeking out on that over email. But, yeah. <laughs> Gary Flake, thank you for you're so smart on all this stuff for for giving us all that stuff about uh, you know where computing and all that stuff is going. But thank you also for telling the story that that I contacted you to tell and and uh, go to Overture, Yahoo, Google, all that stuff. It's 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 so fantastic. Thank,
1: thank you so much for for sharing. Oh, all that. my pleasure. Thank you for 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 doing these podcasts and 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 you know kind of you know, being there to help tell the story, I think, I think you're, you know, I think you're doing a wonderful thing for society because hundreds of years from now, this is going to be the record, you know, I think. And and so thank you for for your part as well. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe
0: to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes, because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is Pod, and my personal Twitter is at McC. Thanks for listening.